The rest of you need to be turning in your Bibles to Galatians. Chapter 3, as we continue our study in this fascinating book. And one of the things that, that we try to do as a church is we try to sing our theology. Uh, I think it's important that our songs voice what we believe. Some of the most theologically profound songs that we sing in the church we might label as children's songs. And one of those I think is very applicable today. I won't sing it, but it goes like this. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Amen. So, and I saw a few of you dancing back there. And this is a Baptist church. We don't dance, all right? So, that's actually okay. Amen. I think that's going to be a very relevant passage of text for us today as we continue our study in the book of Galatians, because a couple of things we want to try to consider as we go through this. So just by way of preview, here's where I am planning to go today. There, there's a lot of talk today about this individual by the name of Abraham. He's an Old Testament saint. He lived a long, long time ago. But our question then, a couple of things I hope to address today is what is the value of a relationship or a heritage in this person, Abraham. I mean, the problem with our text today is that it's very far removed from the 21st century. So what value does a 21st century American have with being related to a guy who lived 3,000 years ago? What is the relevance of being related to this guy named Abraham. So one of the things we want to try to address today is what is the value of a relationship with this guy by the name of Abraham? If it is valuable and if it is relevant, then we want to ask the question, well, then how would I enter into that kind of a relationship? So that's the direction that I hope to go today. It is imperative that we grasp what Paul is putting down. Paul is going to... Uh, communicate a, a, a relatively complex passage of text, and I think that we can simplify it, but it's important for us to grasp what Paul is putting down because Paul's detractors, those people who were um, opposing the Apostle Paul, were saying that a person enters into a relationship with Christ by faith in Christ and something else. That is, a person is justified. Remember, what's our definition of justified? Yeah, being declared not guilty. It's a forensic term, a legal term. That is, where the judge declares a person not guilty. So how does, one, how does a person stand before a holy God not guilty? I think if, we, if there is a God, and I believe there is a God, but some of you may not. I'm not presuming that everybody in this church holds that there is a God. We, as a church, believe that there is a God. Let me establish that. And it is the God who is revealed in Scripture. So, how would we stand before God in a position of being not guilty? See, Paul's detractors were saying, well, here's how you stand in a, posi- in, in a not guilty position before a God. You have to believe in Jesus and you must do something else. 
That's what Paul's detractors were saying. Paul's saying, no, that's not true at all. That one is declared not guilty simply by, by trusting in Christ and his work on the cross alone. And it's imperative or it's a, a relevant issue for us today because even today people are saying that you must believe in Christ and something else. For instance, uh, one of my cohorts in seminary, we had a great big discussion, but he would affirm uh, that a person is declared not guilty by believing in Christ and being baptized, and also being baptized in the right with the right baptismal formula. In other words, the person doing the baptism might, might say the right words. There are many, maybe even here today, that might hold that a person um, is declared not guilty by believing in Christ and observing the Mass. That without the two, you cannot be saved. Or perhaps I believe in Christ and something I must do. I must earn something. I must do something to merit God's favor. Or perhaps believing in Christ and coming to church every Sunday. You should be here every Sunday. But it is not a means of salvation. So there are all sorts of uh, ideas and thoughts and religions and belief systems that would say, this is how you stand in a not guilty position before a holy God. You must believe in Jesus and something else. And Paul would say, no, the not guilty verdict is handed down by the work of Christ, by the merit of Christ alone. Nothing else. It is no Jesus and. So one stands before God uncondemned, because of the work of God. And that's what we saw last week. We saw that we saw the, the work of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working in our salvation and working for our salvation and achieving our salvation. And then we would ask the question, if God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit work to secure your salvation, really, do you think you're going to add to that? That's really kind of the height of arrogance. Say, well, thanks, God. But uh, you did a nice job. Now, you didn't quite get it all done. Now, let me make up for those areas in which you failed to accomplish. And this is what Paul's arguing against. And this is relevant for us today, because I think one of the big questions then is, how is a person saved? So that's where we're going to go today. That's my, my preview I believe that's our need. Let's read our text today in Galatians chapter 3, 6 through 14. And uh, so, you ready? Here we go. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying... All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of God might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, no doubt, that is a a relatively uh, complex passage of text, and my goal today is to unpack it and make it clear. Let me make some preliminary statements before we unpack this. First of all, we should note that to understand this passage, we need to understand that to be a child of Abraham means to be blessed by God. That is, to have God's favor. So how would we then be blessed by God? How would we come into a place to have the favor of God? And we should also note that being blessed is the opposite of being cursed. And we're going to see this contrast between blessing and curse as we go along. So we should probably establish that right now. That to be then, to be a child of Abraham is to be in a blessed relationship or a favorable relationship with God. It is to have God's favor and it is the opposite of being cursed. Now, here's what Paul does. This is not an unusual way for Paul to uh, uh, develop an argument, but he puts forth both a positive and a negative case. And he did this a few weeks ago in the text we looked at. But again, he's going to put forth a positive position and then a negative position. And so I want to look at the positive position. We want to look at how does one become then a child of Abraham, one who is blessed by God, and what would qualify a person to inherit Abraham's blessing. So we're going to learn that Abraham is blessed by God. What qualifies a person to be an heir of Abraham? Paul answers that question by simply saying, it is those who are faith, who are children of Abraham. Look at verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Look at verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. So, to ask the question then is, how does one become a, an heir or a child of Abraham and receive the blessings of God? That's where we're at. You with me? Have I confused you already? Hopefully not. So, let's look at Paul's first Uh, position, and he's going to argue from the Old Testament. It's important that we have a grasp of the Old Testament. Oftentimes, I think Christians uh, focus on the New Testament, which is vitally important, but the New Testament is grounded in the Old, and so we should have a good understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures, because Paul's whole argument comes from the Hebrew Scriptures. And the first thing he says in verse 6 is this, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, Paul is actually quoting from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, uh, verse 6. You might want to turn there if you would like to. I'm going to read this, so as you're turning there, just kind of pay attention. Genesis 15, 6. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. If you're not familiar with your Bible, that's okay. It's the very first book. If you're in anywhere other than Genesis, keep going left. So it goes like this. I'll start with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, for I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said to the O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, 
one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, and if you are able to count them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So let me give you an idea of what's going on. Abram has been called by God, And Abram has received a number of promises. And one of the promises that God has made to Abram is that he would have a multitude of descendants. He would have a bunch of kids. Abram, at this point, is in his 90s. And he has no kids. So you can probably see things are looking relatively bleak for this possibility of him having many descendants In fact, it would be impossible. See, Abram, at this point, has done everything, I would imagine, everything humanly possible to have a child with his wife, Sarah. He had tried in his own abilities to achieve an heir. And it did not happen. He's in his 90s. Sarah's in her 90s. They are both old. Abram has come to an end of himself. I want you to grasp the impossibility of of his situation. And in this situation, in this this impossible scenario, God says, Abram, get up out of your tent. Come out into the night and take a look into the sky. Do you see all those stars? Count them if you can. All those stars, so shall your descendants be. What would your response be? I like to consider myself a person of faith, but I have a feeling I'd say, are you joking me? Don't you see, God, the impossibility of my situation? Don't you see? We've already tried and tried and tried done everything humanly possible and you pull me out here and say look at the stars and you say that's how how my descendants are going to be are you messing with me don't joke with me that was not Abraham's response he believed God that's an amazing response he believed that God would do for him what he could not do for himself that God could that there were no Barriers that were insurmountable to a God who rules the heavens. Abram, look at the stars. I can do that. And Abram believed God. Abram believed that God could bring life from his deadness. Abraham was physically dead in regard, and so was Sarah in regards to bearing children. And Abram believed that Deadness is not a barrier to God. Even in my deadness, God can bring forth life. And he believed God. And righteousness, it tells us, righteousness, right standing with God was imputed or credited to Abraham's account. This is a bookkeeping term. All you accountants probably love this statement. That is that an asset went over to Abraham's side that he was credited with righteousness. 
So in his ledger, on the plus side, on the asset side, God looks and says, Abraham is righteous. He is in right standing with me. On what basis did Abraham achieve this right standing? Because he believed what God said. Nothing else. And so now, Abram is in right standing with God. God now views Abraham as righteous. He views Abraham as just. And let me point this out also, because if you keep reading on in Genesis, um, you'll note that Abram does not, not now live a life of perfection. He stumbles and bumbles his way through life. And yet he is still righteous because he is declared not righteous. I want you to understand that when we come to Christ, we are declared righteous. Even though sometimes we stumble and bumble our way through things, we make our fair share. But see, the credit never gets lost. It never gets erased from that side of the ledger because God put it there and he does not erase that side of the ledger. And so it was credited to him on the basis of his faith. He believed God. And so then we see this is Paul's argument that even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 7, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So, how does one then achieve or receive the blessings of Abraham? One receives them by faith. It is those who are of faith who are children of Abraham. It is those who are of faith who are children of promise. So that's Paul's first uh, part of his positive argument. That one achieves a standing of blessing with God by believing God because that's how Abraham received it and Abraham is the father of our faith. So if we're in Abraham, um, we, have the faith, we have faith like Abraham. All right? So that's the first side of the positive argument. But Paul doesn't end there. He keeps going. Verse 8, he says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. I'll stop there. Now, this also comes out of the book of Genesis. Um, It actually comes out of Genesis chapter 12. Remember, Paul is answering his detractors who are saying, You must believe and be circumcised. You must believe and celebrate the... The, the holy days. You must believe and have and follow the right dietary laws. And Paul is saying, no, you must just believe. Because that's how Abraham came to faith. His detractors would say, no, Abraham was circumcised. He's the father of circumcised. And unless you're circumcised like Abraham, you know, you don't belong to Abraham. Paul would say, Abraham believed long before he was circumcised. He was justified long before any action took place. So now he is talking about uh, this gospel beforehand. And the gospel beforehand is this, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Abraham. This is we find in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so the first thing we see is that God pulls this guy Abram out of 
the land of Ur, which was a pagan nation. He was a moon worshiper. He was not searching for God. God pulled him out and said, now, Abraham, in you, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Quite the promise. A couple of things we learn. Number one, Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish faith, the father of the Jewish people. You've got to remember, before Abraham, there was no Jewish people. They didn't exist. God created them out of nothing. He created them out of this one guy, Abraham. And he said, now, through you, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So Abraham was called to be a blessing to the world. And it is then through the Jewish nation of Israel that the world will be blessed. And, of course, we see that... Um, fulfilled in the person of Christ. So they will be blessed because Abraham is their father. Abraham would be the father of many nations and they would be blessed in him. And we see this, um, not just Jewish people blessed in Abraham, Gentiles. This is why Paul calls it the gospel beforehand. Not just Israel, not just physical descendants of Abraham will be blessed in the faith of Abraham, but even those who do not have a, a smidgen of Abraham's blood running through their veins, even they will be blessed by the faith of Abraham. We see this in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Paul writes, For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So Paul is saying, We will be blessed because of Abraham. And it is not limited just to those who have the physical bloodline of Abraham. And Paul calls this the gospel beforehand. So I guess we should probably describe, well, what do we mean by that? That the gospel was preached beforehand. The gospel was actually preached in Genesis. Where's the first place we see um, the gospel preached? Come on, you guys know. I rammed it through your skulls. Genesis 3.15, right? Even though that was a long time ago, I just rammed that in. But the gospel was also preached in, um, here. So I guess maybe we should probably describe what we mean by the gospel. If this is the gospel beforehand. We should probably have an idea of what it is, exactly what we're talking about. And the gospel is this, that there is a God who created all things. And that nothing came into being outside of the spoken word of a holy God. That means that God created you and he created me. Therefore, we are accountable to this God because we are his creation. However, we have rebelled against this holy God. We have gone our own way. We have done our own thing. We've shaken our fist at God and said, no, I think I'll do it on my own. This is called sin. And because we have sinned, we have become separated from God. So we are no longer in the family of God. We are no longer in a friendship relationship with God. We are actually in at enmity with this God who created us. And the, the wages of that Position is death and eternal death is what the Bible says. So you can see the problem. Can you not? The problem is that we are enmity with God. The gospel is that God who created us, who made us, whom we sinned against, will work to restore that relationship and bring us back into a right relationship with him that we might not only have life now, but have eternal life in him forever through Jesus Christ. So 
This is the gospel beforehand, that God would forgive sin, restore mankind to a right relationship, and grant him eternal life. This is relevant to 21st century Americans. It happened years ago, thousands of years ago, to a guy who, who lived in a completely different culture, in a completely different time, and yet what happened to Abraham and the promises made to Abraham are relevant to you and to me today because God preached the gospel that you and I would be saved through faith like Abraham was saved by faith. Do you see the continuity of Scripture? Sometimes we break up the Scripture and we think that it's just a bunch of individual stories. It is not a bunch of individual stories. It is a single story. It is the plan of redemption. And it flows from Genesis to Revelation of how, how God made things, how man broke things, and how God is restoring things. And it starts in Genesis, it starts in the garden in Genesis, and it ends in a garden in Revelation. You see, the justification by faith is not some Christian idea. It is not a new idea. It did not develop in the first century A.D. It is not an idea that Paul came up with. It is an idea that is as old as history itself. It is found in the very beginning that Gentiles would be accepted by God by faith alone has always been the plan of God. The plan of God has always been that God would justify Gentiles. That is, non-Jews. And he would do it through faith. And he would bring it about through the Jewish nation. But it has always been the plan of God to justify Gentiles of whom I would be one of them. And so Abraham was to, would believe God. And because he believed God, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. In other words... The glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea because of Abraham's faithfulness. This really extends what we see in the book of in the first couple chapters of Genesis. In Genesis, God created Adam and Eve. And what did he say? Now be fruitful and multiply. He did not say stay in the Garden of Eden and, and live out. And he said, extend the borders of Eden. Make sure that the borders of Eden extend to the ends of the earth and be a blessing. Well, they, they failed. But in Christ, those borders are to continue to extend because all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. So therefore, the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This has been God's plan from the very beginning. It's not new. And so I'll just summarize this. The blessings of God will come through Abraham. And one becomes a child of Abraham by believing God, not by your lineage. You do not become a child of Abraham because you were born into the right family. You become a child of Abraham because you believe God. That's how you become a child of Abraham. This was Nicodemus's problem. I know I say this a lot, but Nicodemus's problem was that he believed that he was of the right lineage. And this is why Jesus told him you need to be born again. Because your first birth has no merit in your salvation whatsoever. Well, I shouldn't say whatsoever. Paul says, no, I won't go into that. There is some merit. I shouldn't say there's no merit whatsoever. But it won't save you. What will save you is to be born again, born of the Spirit. That is, having the same faith that Abraham had. All right. So that's the positive argument. The negative argument I'll be relatively brief with because it's simple. It goes like this. For as many are the works of the law are under the curse of the law. 
In other words, basically, he goes on, Paul goes on and says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by the law. Some people are saying, well, you've got to follow um, all of the rules and the regulations of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, you have to follow all the rules that Moses laid down. Then you can be saved. And Paul's saying, no, cursed are you if you try to do that because anybody who fails, even in one area, falls short and is, falls under the judgment of God. And he brings up a, a passage in, a, in a Deuteronomy chapter 27, 26. But basically he says, if you want to be blessed by your good deeds, then you must never falter at all. How are you guys doing on that? Anybody... So far, even the youngest here, right, have fallen short of that one. Not one of us have made it. All of us have fallen. So all of us have broken the law. We've lost it and we've coveted and we have um, failed to do what we ought to do. We have probably uh, not shown kindness to somebody who was in need of kindness. We have not shown justice to somebody who, who was uh, uh, needed justice. These are all things we have failed to do or we have done things that we ought not to have done. And so you've got a problem now if you're going to try to be justified, declared not guilty before God by your good deeds because you've already failed. And if you failed, you are now guilty of the whole law. That's bad news. Paul then goes back and reminds us, just in case you forgot, he says, but the righteous will live by faith. Um, By the way, this is a quote from the book of Habakkuk which I find it interesting because Paul says the righteous will live by faith in Genesis. But just in case you think that that was limited to Abraham, one of the prophets much later on says the righteous will live by faith. Paul's just reminding us that the righteous will live by faith. It has always been the truth of Scripture. And he goes on, he says, but the law is not faith. See, we are justified because God makes a promise to us Believe what I say, and these are the promise. These are the promises that you that will be bestowed upon you. If you read the promises made to Abram, and we've read those, notice the I wills. I will do this. 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 But then read the Ten Commandments: Thou shalt. Thou shalt. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Do you see the big differences? The promise God says, "I'll do this." The law says. You do this. So where are you going to put your faith and trust? In your own human weakness, or are you going to put your faith and trust in a God who says, I will do this? Paul goes on and says, basically, cursed is everybody who does not abide by all the works of the law. Paul summarizes, there's his negative argument. His negative argument is this, that you can't perform the works perfectly enough to be justified. Your good deeds, even if your good deeds were able to outweigh your bad deeds, one bad deed negates them all. That's Paul's position. That's the Bible's position. One bad deed negates them all, and you are now a sinner guilty before God. But we don't want to be guilty before God. We want to be in a not guilty standing before God. So we need to believe God. Now, Paul concludes this argument with some really fascinating passages of text. In verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
So how, if we want to be redeemed from the curse, how would that happen? Remember, curse is opposite of blessing. We want to be on the blessing side, not the cursing side. How can that happen? It happens because Christ becomes a curse for us. Paul uses this scripture, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, I need to uh, identify this kind of subtle nuance here. So if you're sleeping, wake up. All right, everybody awake. The subtle nuance is this. Paul is not saying that if you are hanged on a tree, you are cursed. That's not what Paul is saying. Here's what Paul is saying. Those who are hanged on a tree are demonstrate that they are cursed. All right. Let me see if I can clarify this just a little bit. If you lived in the day of Moses or in the day of Abraham and you committed a capital crime, let's just say you killed somebody. And so the death penalty then would have been carried out against you by a variety of different means. And so you then are put to death because of your crime. After you're put to death because of your crime, they would take your dead body and hang it on a tree as a public portrayal, a public announcement that you were judged by God, found guilty, and hence found guilty and put to death. And the fact that you are hanging publicly on this tree is evidence that you were cursed by God. Does that make sense? You weren't just you're being put on a tree is not being cursed. It is, you're put on a tree because you're cursed. Did you see that fine little nuance there? Okay, because this is going to be important. Cursed is everybody who is hanged on a tree. Christ became a curse for us because as he was hung on the cross, and it is then a public display of being put under God's curse. When Christ was put on the tree, was nailed to a cross, basically, this it was the testimony that Christ was cursed. It's obvious. He was put on a tree. He had to be cursed. Christ was displayed as cursed as a sinner who had invoked God's wrath. Let me just depart from here real quick. Do you see why it might be, might have been so difficult for a Jewish person in the times of Paul to believe that Christ was Messiah? And do you see why it might be difficult today for a Jewish person to believe that Christ was the Messiah? Because he was hung on a tree, which is evidence that he was cursed by God. How can a man claim to be Messiah, king of the world, savior of everything, and yet it's obvious he was hung on a tree? As soon as you say he was crucified, it's like, well, that proves that he was cursed. Yes, and that's the whole point that Paul, gets, Paul goes into. Paul will say that he was hung on a tree not for his own sin. He was cursed by God, that's true. But the curse that he bore was your curse and my curse. And he stood in your place and my place. He was the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. He was the one who never broke a law in any respect whatsoever. And yet... He was displayed as cursed. And the reason he was displayed as cursed was because he took your place and he took my place. Christ was displayed as cursed by God, uh, a sinner who had invoked God's wrath. And here, 
we see uh, just this wonderful passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, the suffering servant. Many of you know this passage of text, but let me go back to 52 and read something. And then I'll, I'll unpack this a little bit more. It says, he's talking about the servant who will be the, become the suffering servant. And he says this, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his, that is my servant, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. In other words, this servant was going to be physically brutalized beyond recognition. That's what he's saying. And then up in chapter 53, verse, verses 3 and 4, he was despised and forsaken of men. And I want you to notice this very interesting shift in Isaiah's perspective between verse 3 and 4. Verse 3, he was despised, who the servant who was marred before, was marred and beaten beyond recognition. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. He had committed a crime. Obviously, he had committed a crime so heinous that he would be so badly beaten, obviously a man so badly beaten, so publicly portrayed as cursed, must have done something horrific against God. This man must be one of the worst criminals who has ever walked the face of the earth. There is no doubt about it. Oh, but look at the, sh the shift to verse 4. I think this is intentional. Isaiah is saying he was despised and forsaken. He had to be cursed by God. He had to be God's greatest enemy. And then verse 4. A light bulb goes off and a realization hits. Surely our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But it was our transgressions that pierced him. It was our iniquities that crushed him. It was our chastening for our well-being that fell upon him. And it is by his scourging that we are healed. We are the sheep who went astray. Do you see the shift? This man is publicly portrayed as cursed. It's obvious. Look how badly beaten he is. Look at the public shame that he has experienced. And then Isaiah says, oh, here's the reality. That man's innocent. We're the guilty ones. We're the ones who sinned. We're the ones who fell short. Surely he is bearing hit those griefs on, on our behalf. And surely it's our iniquities that he is being punished for. And, and he's beginning to see it is Messiah who is not the cursed ones. We're the cursed ones. But Messiah bore our curse so that we might be the righteousness of God. In order that the blessing Christ was cursed, he bore our curse so that we could receive the blessings of Abraham. And it is through believing that it is in believing that we are dead and believing that God can make us alive that we will be declared not guilty. So we go on in Galatians, it also, he also says, so that in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. This is important. And all uh, the Spirit um, 
Reception of the Holy Spirit is one of the blessings of Abraham. It is necessary for eternal life, and it is necessary, it is, evident, it is evidence that you are a child of Abraham. Let me conclude with this. I know that this is a rather complex passage of text, but here's what I hope you get. The blessings of Abraham. I've hoped to show you what are the blessings of Abraham. Well, the blessings of Abraham are this, eternal life and reception of the Holy Spirit, which assures you of eternal life. Those are the blessings of Abraham. Then we would ask, how does one receive those blessings? Can I be certain that I have eternal life? Can I be certain that I can have the Holy Spirit, which assures me and guarantees my eternal life? How does one receive that? Well, I'm glad you asked. You need to be, be like Abraham in John chapter 8, 39. The Jews answered Jesus. They said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. Are you Abraham's children? If you are a child of Abraham, then you will receive the blessings of Abraham. What are the blessings of Abraham? Eternal life in the Holy Spirit, which assures you of the eternal life. How do I become a person of Abraham? It is not by bloodline. It is not by descent, but it is by doing the deeds of your father, Abraham. What were the deeds of your father, Abraham? Believe that God is able to raise the dead. This is why Paul goes on and says in, in the remainder of Galatians, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no male, there is no female, there is no rich, there is no poor, there is no slave, there is no free, there is no American, there is no Samoan, there is no Asian, there is no Russian, there is no conservative, liberal, there is no Republican, Democrat, independent, any of that. You are all children of Abraham because you have the same faith of Abraham and you believe that God will bring life to you who are dead. The Bible tells us that we are dead because of our, of our uh, trespasses and sins, but God is able to make you alive together with him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that you are so dead that somehow it is impossible for God to raise up your deadness to life? That's the place Abraham was in. I am dead. I cannot bring, I cannot achieve life out of my own body. And he trusted God to bring life. And so I am appealing to you now. If you have never come to life in Christ, if that's an offer that is being made today, that is that you can have the faith of Abraham, have the benefits and heritage of Abraham, that is eternal life and the Holy Spirit, which will assure you of eternal life. And those are yours, and they are yours by faith, not by any works that you can do. And I don't care your background. I don't care your socioeconomic status. I do not care your political persuasion. I do not care about your race. I don't care about any of that. Do you believe that God will take you who are dead in your trespasses and sins and raise you together with him because Christ bore the penalty of your trespasses and sins? If you believe that, then you have, you've done the works of Abraham and you are a child of Abraham. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand. We're going to sing another song. And um, before we dismiss, and then while we're singing that, if God has put it upon your heart that, hey, I, I want to be a, of the family of Abraham. My wife and I are going to be sitting here. Why don't you just come and, and sit down next to us and... Um, then after the church, we would love to explain to you 
the joys of being a child of Abraham, literally a child of the living God. So let's stand and let's sing.